Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. It's been forever. Perhaps you thought I was done with the podcast. Not at all. I've had a lot going on personally. Nothing bad. All good stuff. But it has consumed a lot of my time, energy, and thoughts. And I just didn't have the space to uh, give time to the podcast. But I'm excited to be back up and running. Uh, What I'm going to do over the next few weeks is record some episodes I intended to record uh, following our Good of the Bluegrass conference where I spoke on sexuality and gender. Some of you were there or listened online. Uh, Some of you haven't. You are welcome to go listen to those lectures um, on our Good of the Bluegrass conference podcast feed. But what I'm going to do with this episode, and I'm warning you up front, is going to be a doozy. I'm lifting my normal time constraints with this one episode because what I thought would be helpful is to condense the main message of all of my lectures into one podcast. Now, that's a challenge because it was a lot of dense teaching, but I did want one podcast to offer people that summarized everything I said um, as sort of an abridged version of the conference. That's what I'm going to do with this one. The others will be shorter, but this one is going to run a little long. Now, I actually think the timing works better because we are entering into the month of June. And as you know, uh, that is LGBTQ plus Pride Month in our culture. The sexual and gender revolution is always before us now, but it's uniquely before us during the month of June. In another episode, I'm going to explain how we got to the place where LGBTQ plus affirmation is now a form of uh, cultural orthodoxy. But I think every Christian who holds to a historic sexual ethic is desperate for guidance in this area. 20 years ago, our beliefs on human sexuality were not just acceptable, but predominant. President Obama, uh, his official position when he first ran for office was that marriage was reserved for one man and one woman. But now, of course, those views are completely unacceptable, culturally speaking. And so we who still hold to historic teachings on human sexuality uh, find ourselves lost in a sea of confusion, not knowing what to do. Well, I'll tell you what you can't do. You can't win the argument. If bodies and pronouns are being altered to accommodate this cultural moment, then trust me, logic and reason will hold no sway. You can't debate your way out of this moment. Instead, you're going to have to tell a better story. When argumentation fails us, storytelling is where we turn. And thankfully, we have a very compelling story to tell. Between 1979 and 1984, Pope John Paul II delivered 139 lectures that would become his magnum opus entitled Theology of the Body. John Paul foresaw the distortion and disarray of sexuality that was emerging uh, during the sexual revolution and with prophetic foresight authored a Christian critique. Now, I'm obviously a Protestant and a big fan of the Reformation, and there's obviously much I disagree with his teachings, but the central tenets of his uh, scholarship on sexuality and gender are to me the most important work the church has produced on this vitally important issue of our day. Now, fair warning, if you want to get Theology of the Body to try, 
I would highly recommend you start with uh, Christopher West, who has kind of popularized John Paul's teachings, which are pretty inaccessible. So start with Christopher West if you want to get into this yourself. Uh, but Christopher West is a Catholic himself too. So what I kind of try to do is take John Paul's teaching, um, Christopher West commentary, and give a Protestant version of that. And here's what I discovered. Not only does the Bible have much to say on human sexuality and gender, the Bible itself is that better story we must tell. What if I told you that the scriptures tell an eternal cosmic story of erotic love? Love comes in many different forms, does it not? I love chips and salsa. I love my friends. I love Kentucky basketball. I love my kids. We use the word love to describe many things, and we are right to do so. But there is one love we all know is unique, erotic love, named after the Greek word eros. Eros, this most sacred love reserved for the most sacred act. A love so powerful, God withholds it from us until our bodies are developed enough to house it. Children experience and enjoy every form of love except eros. It's too powerful for children to handle, and if it's introduced too early, it has lifetime trauma effects. Eros is a love so formidable, it can decimate our souls with pain, anger, righteous jealousy. I celebrate my wife's love of art museums, her love of her friends, etc. I celebrate everything my wife loves, but if she had eros for another, I would come undone. What are we to make of the erotic? This love that leads us where no other love can take us, and to heights of ecstasy and depths of intimacy, and most remarkable of all, a love so singular in its power that it actually has the potential to create new life. What are we to do with Eros? And more importantly, what has Eros to do with God? The answer is everything. More than any other love, we discover God in the erotic. And that is the love story I wish to share in this podcast. I believe it is a story so transcendent in its glory that if properly proclaimed and practiced, every competing story in our culture collapses in its presence. The story begins in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. On a most fundamental level, this means that we are icons of the divine. We are these special creatures who tell the story of God in unique ways. Unlike animals, we are moral creatures because God is moral. Unlike animals, we are creatures with a sense of justice because God is just. Unlike animals, we pursue truth, beauty, and goodness because God is true, beautiful, and good. You get the point. Now, animals mate and procreate, but there's more to it for image bearers, is there not? For example, why do we cover our genitals? We didn't in the beginning, more on that in a moment, but we do now. Why? My dog Millie just goes about our house and neighborhood flaunting her stuff without a care in the world. Why not us? Because there is something sacred about these private parts and we know it. They are the physical instruments of the erotic within us. We weren't created to mate. We were created quite literally to make love. Nothing is more unique to image bearers than erotic love. Now I ask you, is that the one part of us that is not 
created in the image of God? Is human sexuality the most powerful, intimate, desirous, pleasurable, compelling part of the human existence exempt from God's image? Quite the opposite. The reason why sexuality holds unique prominence within every image bearer of God is because our sexuality is a window into the deepest mysteries of God. Let me explore that mystery and show you what I mean. God is one God and three distinct persons, one in essence, three distinct persons. That verse I read said, then God, singular, said, let us, plural, make man in our image, plural, image. So the Trinity is there from the beginning. And the reason why the admittedly incomprehensible nature of the Trinity is one essence, three distinct persons, the reason why that is so important is because it means that God did not create out of need. He wasn't lonely and needed to create for fellowship. He has forever enjoyed fellowship in himself. He wasn't bored and needed to create something to enjoy. He has forever reveled in his own glory. And most significantly, God was not unloved and needed to create to be loved. God has forever found love in himself. In fact, God is love. Therefore, he does not need love. But what does that even mean that God is love? John Paul says the Trinity is an eternal exchange of love. Forever God has been sharing and receiving love. And when I say love, I mean love. Love in its fullest and highest form. Not some generic, boring, stoic, conceptual love. I mean ecstasy. I mean rapture. I mean an eternal, intoxicating exchange of endless bliss. I mean erotic love. Now, this is going to be tough for us to hear considering our preconceptions and experiences with sex. But we are made in God's image, not the other way around. So we don't sexualize the Trinity. Instead, the Trinity has given us sex as a glimpse into the Trinity. And the glimpse is this, an eternal exchange, a forever sharing and receiving of love's great ecstasy. So then why did God create us in the first place? Why, if he is perfectly satisfied in triune love, did God create us? To share in his love. God did not create us because he needs more love. God created us to share in his love. So how do we share in the love that God has forever enjoyed? Let's return to Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So how did he craft his image? It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is something uniquely significant about the male-female binary when it comes to the image of God. More specifically, it's the uniqueness of male and the uniqueness of female that unlocks the mystery of God's image. So let's turn to Genesis 2 and see God fashion the uniqueness of male and female. It starts with Adam. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the breath of God fills this newly formed animal and the animal ceases to be an animal forevermore. He is now the image of God. Or is he? 
because it would seem the image is not yet complete because God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And then it says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, what's so interesting about that is, is if God wanted to make another image bearer, he could have repeated the process. But Eve is the only living creature created not from the dust, but from another creature. And that is profoundly significant. Remember, the Trinity is one in essence and three distinct persons. Well, Eve now is the same essence of Adam, but a distinct person. And notice the bodily emphasis in Adam's response. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He sees in her body something of himself, not just the biology of her body, but the theology of her body. The story of his body makes sense when he sees her body. And the story he discovers is in the differences of their bodies. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And yes, her bones and flesh are exactly the same as his, except in one area, only one area. They all have the exact same features except in one place. There is only one area where Adam's body doesn't make sense by itself. There is only one area where Eve's body doesn't make sense by itself. Each body bears one part that is incomplete. But standing there, face to face, naked and without fallen shame, the glorious mystery of their bodies is unveiled. Adam essentially says, finally, I make sense. Because he discovers something that can only be discovered in the presence of Eve's naked body. Adam did not need Eve to understand his body in every area but one. His eyes made sense by themselves, his arms and legs, hands and feet. His whole body was complete in itself, except for one and only one area that needed Eve's naked body to make sense. The male bodily system and the female bodily system depend upon each other in only one way and only discover the full functionality in union with the other's differences. I'm talking about genitalia here, if you haven't put it together yet. Even down to the cellular level, every cell in your body has 46 chromosomes with one exception. The sperm cell has 23 and the ovum has 23. Friends, in discussing genitals, we are on holy ground. We are entering into the very heart of the Trinity's eternal exchange of love. And in this way, the genitals tell a story that nothing else in all creation has the capacity to tell. It is true that all of creation speaks of its creator in some way. The heavens declare the glory of God. Indeed, this is true. Look up at a starry night, you will get a glimpse of God's glory. Look at a majestic sunset, you will get a glimpse of God's beauty. Look upon a raging storm, you will get a glimpse of God's power. But the vision of God's love, the unveiling of the mystery of God's eternal exchange of triune love, this he has trusted to his image bearers as male and female. The genitals, the complementary instruments of erotic love, are the nearest we get to the heart of the divine trinity.
Yes, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, but the genitals declare the love of the Lord. And the genitals declare that love when they come together. The love of God is fully unveiled in the next verse. And the two became one flesh. The one flesh union of male and female. When God's image participates in its own exchange of love, there in that sacred orgasmic exchange, the mystery of the Trinity's love is revealed. Actually, there's one more step to the mystery. God is one in three, one essence, three persons. Eve was taken from Adam, thus the same in essence, yet two persons. Perhaps you're wondering how male and female as two can accurately reflect reflect the three persons of the Trinity. Well, who said male and female are alone in their one flesh union? They won't be for long. The final and fullest expression of their erotic union is that glorious moment when the only incomplete cells of the male unite with the only incomplete cells of the female and a new image bearer of God is conceived. You want to talk about the sanctity of life? In that microscopic moment of conception that we cannot see, we actually see eternity's love. In that sacred moment, you have three distinct persons, all of one essence, surrounded by the raptures of love. The problem with much of Christian teaching on sex and gender is that it begins after Genesis 3. It allows our experiences with fallen sexuality to dictate the terms of discussion. And in this way, our starting point rests on the assumption that sex is gross or even bad. We will have none of that here. Erotic love is the high point of God's created order. The Trinity has forever existed in an eternal exchange of love, and the Trinity has given us his image bearers, the glorious gift of revelation into what he has forever enjoyed. When male and female, within the safe and sacred boundaries of nuptial vows, are once again naked without shame, intoxicated by the unique arousal only that naked sight affords us, joining their genitals in one flesh union, as ecstasy rises to heights nothing else in the world can offer, culminating in orgasmic euphoria, and that orgasm literally creates a new image bearer of God. That, brothers and sisters, is the closest you will ever get to the eternal life of the Trinity. Blessed be the name of the Lord for his glorious gift of sex and gender. But unfortunately, we know what happens next. An enemy enters into this story to wage war against God via God's image bearers. And that enemy is described as crafty. Well, consider this. If indeed erotic love is the greatest picture of God's eternal love, then I ask you, where would you suppose a crafty enemy is going to direct his attack? The enemy wants no one to know the love of God, and therefore the enemy seeks to destroy Eros the icon of God's love. Therefore, nowhere are the consequences of the fall experienced more than in our sexuality. And we see this in the details of the fall. Genesis 2 ends with this beautiful um, erotic declaration. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Then immediately in Genesis 3, the enemy of God tempts God's image away from their destiny. They succumb to the temptation. They take of that which is forbidden. And then verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The consequences of the fall is manifested in their nakedness, specifically their genitals. Then the eyes of both were opened. It's not that they were blind before. It's that now they see something they had never seen. And they knew that they were naked. They were naked before, but now they see their nakedness differently. What has changed? The clue is in the next phrase. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The genitals now need protection. There is something about this newfound perspective that specifically threatens the sexual differences between male and female. The genitals are now vulnerably exposed to something dangerous, and they instinctively know they must be protected from the other. What is this newfound threat? John Paul argues that love has been replaced by lust. And the difference between love and lust all comes down to the direction of eros. Eros is still present in fallen image bearers, but eros is now redirected. And the redirection is away from the other and toward the self. Where once eros was selfless, it is now selfish. Where once eros was a window into the love of God, it is now a mirror reflecting our love of self. The essence of fallen sexuality is that love's exchange has been replaced by lust's exploitation. And when that happens, rules no longer apply except the rule of self. When Eros was defined by the Trinity's giving and receiving of love, then erotic love had to follow the will of God to be accomplished. But erotic lust redirects Eros towards self, and therefore, erotic lust must follow my will in order to be accomplished. Simply put, God sets the rules of love. I set the rules of lust. Therefore, there are no rules except the rule that my lust must be satisfied. And so once love's exploration has been replaced by lust's exploitation, Suddenly, Pandora's box is opened, and the power of Eros, designed to be creation's greatest glory, is unleashed as the source of its greatest ruin. Nothing in all creation is more powerful than erotic love. That was true before the fall, and it's true after the fall. Throughout all of history, nothing has proven more destructive than sinners compelled by lust's exploitation. But God is not done with Eros. He will not hand his creation over to sinful ruin, and so begins his project of salvation and redemption. And in the same way Eros was central to God's creation, Eros will be central to God's redemption. We ruined Eros, but God then uses Eros to rescue Eros, and in the end, the Eros we enjoy far surpasses the Eros we lost. Let me show you what I mean. God's word to Satan in Genesis 3, directly after the fall, is this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now, if you're a Christian, you've probably heard that verse many times before. But now, 
in light of everything we've been discussing, I wonder if it takes on a different meaning. God is going to crush Satan through the coming seed of a woman. Do you know what that means? God is going to use sex to win his cosmic battle. Generation after generation after generation of erotic love is going to yield God's salvation. Countless male and female one flesh unions are going to bring the Genesis 3.15 promise into the world. I said the genitals declare the love of the Lord. Well, after the fall, that takes on a whole new meaning. The genitals declare the saving love of the Lord. Quite literally, the genitals now preach the gospel. Don't believe me? Think I'm reading too much into this? Well, how about we consider something else you've always known in light of what we've been discussing? What was God's covenant sign in the Old Testament? Ah, that, that's what that crazy sign means. <laughs> Every generation of penises were circumcised as a sign of God's promise sealed in blood because one of those penises would deliver the sacred seed that would keep the promise of God's love alive for another generation. But a seed is nothing without the uniqueness of the female body, without a womb, where life is conceived and nurtured, which is why the female body, more so than the male body, holds prominence in God's story of redemption. Oh, sisters, your body is holy ground. And I'm going to discuss this further in another podcast. But for now, remember I said the female body is the only part of creation fashioned from God's image. Therefore, it is quite literally the high point of all creation, the highest glory and beauty we see. Well, in the same way, your body is also the high point of redemption. You want to know what is most sacred to God? Find what is most hated by God's enemy. And more than anything else, Satan hates your body, the uniqueness of your body. Satan hates the womb. Return again to Genesis 3. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's the woman Satan is after. It's the womb, that holy space where God's promise of a coming seed will be conceived, protected, nurtured, and delivered to the world. It's the womb that Satan is after. Have you ever noticed how prominent the theme of barrenness is to the story of the Old Testament? That's Satan trying to stop that coming seed. What we see is that at key points of redemption's story, a barren womb seems to put an end to the promise. We call him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, we don't have that story unless God overcomes the barrenness of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Do you see? The story of the coming seed, as God predicted, is a story of Satan's enmity with the woman and his effort to turn the womb into a tomb. But this is a battle Satan will not win. As God promised, the seed would prevail, and every single female body testifies to that promise. Directly after Genesis 3.15, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. He focuses on childbirth for a reason. He says your body, specifically the unique system of your body, is now cursed. But this is not a meaningless curse. The uniqueness 
of female suffering uniquely testifies to the saving suffering of the coming seed. Every single month, your body suffers and bleeds, proclaiming the good news of a suffering and bleeding body that will yield salvation. Under the Old Testament law, during that time of the month, the female body was declared unclean and sent outside the camp. There she suffers alone, unclean, and cast off, testifying to the one who would suffer alone, unclean, and cast off. And when your womb does conceive, that conception gives way to a cross only you have been asked to bear. Your flesh tears, the torn flesh, the broken body of a Savior on the cross. And then you want to talk about blood. <laughs> Before we had kids, I assumed there would be blood during the delivery. I had no idea. All four times, I nearly passed out. But the, the bloody mess of childbirth testifies to the reservoir of saving blood shed by our Savior. And then, ladies, your cross of childbirth yields new life. And your joy over that new life far surpasses the cross it took to produce it. Was it worth it? Every mother says a thousand times yes. Well, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. If you want to know whether the cross was worth it to Jesus, just ask a mother whether her cross was worth it. And then this new life she has produced is nourished by her breast that takes blood and remarkably turns it into sustaining food. We don't just need the blood of Jesus to be born again. We need his blood to sustain us along this journey. Good Lord, ladies, your body is holy. And so the point I'm making is God created erotic sex as the high point of creation. Because of sin, erotic sex has devastated creation, but then God chooses to use erotic sex to save creation. But there's an unthinkable twist to the story. The prophets of God at times spoke of God's coming salvation with what can only be labeled as scandalous language as though God himself is going to enter the sacred story of Eros. Let me give you a sampling. Isaiah 62. For as a young man marries a young woman, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice in love and compassion. Ezekiel 16, I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed, your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Okay, now this whole Eros thing is getting out of control. <laughs> As if we haven't been uncomfortable up until this point, now we have God using this language. Well, it's about to get even crazier. After everything you have heard thus far, let's turn to Luke 1. An angel of the Lord comes to a virgin. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, we don't do to Mary what the Catholics do to Mary, nor should we. But I'll say this, we don't do enough with Mary. 
She is the most favored female body the world has ever known, and her womb is the most hated womb in the history of Satan's hatred. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? How can this be? Since the Garden of Eden, only the erotic union between male and female can yield conception in the womb. The angel announces a mystery that unlocks the greatest mystery of eternity. God has chosen to enter the story of erotic love. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That womb becomes a tabernacle of the living God, and she gives birth to the story's second Adam, and Adam is after his bride. He begins his pursuit, not surprisingly, at a wedding feast. And at that wedding, the wine runs out. Now, throughout Scripture, really in all of cultures, but particularly in Scripture, particularly in Song of Solomon, wine is synonymous with erotic love. And the first miracle, Jesus turns water into wine as if to say, I'm here to rescue this erotic story. And then he does just that. I doubt you will ever hear these words the same again. My body given for you. In what John Paul says is the greatest act of erotic love, Jesus goes to the cross to save his bride. Genesis begins with they were naked and unashamed. The first thing that happens after the fall is they cover their nakedness and shame. Well, I know that every single depiction of Jesus on the cross puts loincloths on him, but that's only because we can't handle the irreverence of a Savior naked on the cross. But friends, we need to face it. Jesus was hung naked and shamed so that one day we could recover again that blessed destiny of nakedness without shame. And then Jesus closes his eyes in death. But as we know, Sunday's coming. This is only a deep sleep. Well, remember, the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and from his side comes his bride. Well, what's the first thing that happened to Jesus when he closes his eyes? They pierce his side. And what comes out? The same thing that flows from the female in childbirth. Water and then blood. From the pierced side of the first Adam comes his bride. From the pierced side of the second Adam comes his bride. And then they lay his body in a tomb. Now remember, the aim of Satan's attack was to turn the womb into a barren tomb so that the seed of promise could not conceive. Well, the seed of promise enters a tomb and turns the tomb into a womb, a womb that gives birth to resurrection life. And now our resurrected bridegroom is saving himself or his bride. He is waiting for the culmination of this great erotic story, the wedding feast of the Lamb who died to save his bride. Now let me describe that moment from a passage you may have heard many times, but you're going to hear it differently now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the resurrection of all things. 
I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You ready? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is why Jesus says we will no longer have marriage or the giving of marriage in the resurrection, for we will all be married to God. Before the fall, we were given a taste of God's love. But talk about the ultimate what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The fall sets the stage for an even better story. Jesus comes for his bride, and in the end, what was once only tasted in the erotic will be forever experienced in its fullness. I'll say it one last time. We don't sexualize the Trinity. The Trinity gave sex to understand the Trinity. But in the resurrection, we won't need the illustration that points to the Trinity's love exchange. We will be welcomed into the Trinity's love exchange. And our eternal destiny is destined to be the love that the Trinity has forever enjoyed. Now, how's that for an erotic love story? <laughs> what the church has to offer our world of disarrayed eroticism is not our arguments. We have a better story to tell. More than that, a better story to practice. All right, that is more than enough for today. I will have some follow-up podcasts that go deeper into some of these things. But for now, thanks for listening. It's so good to be back. And I promise that I will be back soon for another episode of Every Square Inch. Every Square Inch.